Uh, well, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Kirk Franklin, and my wife is here with me, Christine. Uh, we are with Wycliffe, and so it's a privilege just to join you in your mission service. Um, in fact, I feel like I already know you a little bit, um, even though I haven't actually been in your building before. Uh, a couple years ago, when we were all in lockdown, I was invited to give a mission message online. So I never got to meet you in person. It's really strange doing that, by the way, um, you know, just giving a pre-recorded thing. But uh, grateful to be here live uh, with you, but recognizing there's also people online. Um, and I come, uh, Christy and I come from Morandite Community Church, which is also part of the Christian Church Community Churches of Australia. And I think we probably have quite a few links and friendships between uh, the two congregations. Uh, interesting that you're starting parables next week because so are we. Um, so somehow we maybe because we hear the same Holy Spirit speaking to us. However, uh, we're doing ours in eight weeks um, because we don't have a pastor. Uh, so we're relying on lay people to um, give us the message and we didn't want to wear them out uh, going too long. But that not that interesting, just some of the connections that we have mutually. So I wanted to uh, frame or present um, this message around something that you may not have always thought about when we think of mission, and that is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and their activity together in mission, and particularly what that means about relationships and working together. Um, but as I said, I'm uh, Christine and I are with Wycliffe, and so uh, it's easy to assume you know who Wycliffe is, but here's a real fast uh, recap or introduction. Back in 1942, an American uh, man named William Cameron Townsend, he's much younger than in that photo, uh, he and his Southern Californian friend Bill Nyman founded an organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators. Wycliffe is the name of John Wycliffe, who was the first well, the one we give credit to for doing the first English translation. It wasn't a full translation. That was later done by William Tyndale, back before the Protestant Reformation. So they honored Townsend, uh, sorry, they honored Wycliffe or Wycliffe, depending on, on uh, how you want to pronounce that. But Townsend himself, uh, reading his biographies, he, did, he said, he admitted, he wasn't actually a student of mission. Back in those days, there were Bible institutes that were training people for mission. He was not a graduate of that at all. In fact, he said that all, actually all he had really done uh, was to read the biography of uh, the famous explorer, the African missionary explorer, John Livingston, and a couple other pamphlets, and that was about it. But he felt this urgent call to first go to Guatemala to try to sell Spanish Bibles, only to find out that there's actually indigenous people there as well who don't speak Spanish that well. Uh, and that kind of challenged him to do something about minority languages and then went on to Mexico. Um, and he actually founded, in time, uh, three different organizations. Now, this was the turbulent time. We think we live in turbulent times now, but actually... Uh, I'm not a main historian, but I've done enough historical work to know that the 19, uh, from World War I, the Great Depression, the Spanish flu, World War II, were catastrophic world events that brought the world together in ways that it had never seen before. And while World War II was raging, was not actually the best or ideal time to found an organization. 
that Townsend did. He first founded Esile in the 30s and then Wycliffe to support Esile in the 40s. This was really bad timing from a human point of view. But what distinguishes Townsend when we look at the great leaders and founders of mission agencies over the past is that Townsend became known for one thing, his faith. And he trusted God for the impossible. And if you look back at our early records, he started with absolutely nothing and just a couple people. And over time, God has blessed this movement so much so that by this year alone, uh, we've seen Esile International grow with its groundbreaking service to minority people groups. We've seen JARS grow in its technical and aviation support of that. And then we've seen Wycliffe Bible Translators grow into the Wycliffe Global Alliance of over 110 uh, like-minded uh, Bible translation agencies working together. And that excludes all the other translation agencies like the Bible Societies and others. So something that starts in the 30s where there's minimal attention to the Bibleist needs or the people groups who don't have scripture other than the big languages that the Bible Society was focused on now has become a global movement. It all started with bad timing but trusting in God for the impossible. So what we have today, uh, and you've got some statistics up there, you can, you can study those while, while I reflect quickly on where we are today. Um, when you get together with people who work around the scripture, especially in translation, they are extremely passionate people. I know Dave Sharp might not, when you talk to Dave, you might not realize how passionate he and Ellie are about the scriptures, but they've actually given their lives to that, and that's pretty passionate. And they and, and all of us who joined in this movement are very committed to making sure the word of God is available, because without the word of God, how can we see churches thriving uh, and worshiping the Lord in their own language and being fed for evangelism, church planting, spiritual growth, and transformation? So what Townsend started has continued to grow. Christine and I have been involved in Wycliffe, uh, Christine, for 45 years and me for 43 years. So actually more than half of this time this organization has existed. And we've seen phenomenal changes in terms of how God has raised up people from all nations. Now, one of the things I would therefore like to look at from Scripture is how we can actually... Uh, read the Bible in a new way or a newer way to us. Just as Bible translation has changed and developed and we've learned a lot of insights, we've also learned how to read the Bible from a missional hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is simply meaning interpretation. So we've learned that actually the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a story or a narrative of God at work in his mission. It doesn't, it is not limited to a couple passages. Uh, we will actually look at a couple of those passages that we're more familiar with. But it's rendering to us, as Chris Wright, a theologian says, God's story of his mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of God's purpose for the whole of creation. And that's a grand narrative that goes through all of scripture. So what happens when we, we don't have time obviously to look at Genesis to Revelation, everything that God might say about mission. In fact, that would be an excellent study for churches to do sometime. It would probably take them a few years. But what we can do this morning is we can look at five passages that are the recorded last words of Jesus. 
Um, now, he may have said other last words because um, even the authors of the Gospels tell us we don't have everything that he's said. But what happens when we look at these passages, but we look at them through a lens of mission and a lens of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the relationship between the three. And if we do that, what do we learn? And how are we equipped, better equipped for mission today? So how about we start with... The first one, uh, this is the passage that in your Bibles and um, even your electronic Bibles, uh, at the start of your this passage, it usually starts around Matthew 28, verses 16, you will see a heading called the Great Commission. Just check and see if I'm correct, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Probably of every translation, whatever your favorite English translation is, it will probably have that heading. But as we know, that was not Jesus' words. Those were added later. And it's always an interesting exercise to figure out who came up with this term, the Great Commission. So some would say it actually was a Dutch missionary named Justinian von Wels, who lived in 1621 to 1688. So evidently he came up with it. But it was actually probably Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission, now OMF, 200 years later, who at least popularized and said, this passage, this is the Great Commission. This is the charge we've been given as Christians. And so that's why that heading uh, remains. But what is the text itself? Let me read it to you from, from the NIV. And these are the words that Jesus gives after he's resurrected and he's speaking to his 11 disciples. Because remember, the 12th hadn't been appointed yet. Uh, to replace Judas. Jesus comes to them and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, let's, uh, first of all, I, I don't know if you like grammar, I don't. Um, but there is one imperative in this statement. Uh, what, that is an instruction. And that is a command, an instruction or a command. Go uh, to make disciples. That's the command, make disciples. Following that is three particip- participles, forms from verbs, used as adjectives. So as you are going, you're baptizing and you're teaching. You're going, as you're going, you're teaching, you're baptizing and you're teaching. We assume in that kind of order, but probably not. I think it's the going. As you're going about your business with the kingdom, serving the Lord, you're finding opportunities to to share the gospel. People respond. People are baptized, and you have this ongoing process of teaching. But the ultimate aim or outcome should be a transformational process, transformational discipleship is what we, we think is happening here. But the text is also Trinitarian. Here's the interesting part. The Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit are all actively involved here. The baptizing of new disciples is into God's community, and so it's in the names of the three triune God. The triune God issues a call of a personal relationship with Jesus because he is the one who ushers in the kingdom of God. It demands a radical loyalty and commitment. It summons us as people to a lifestyle of obedience 
and a costly comprehensive, comprehensive uh, it, it involves all of life. It's an entry into a community chosen to participate in God's mission. It, mission always means boundary crossing, whether it means the crossing over the next few streets in the neighborhood or some other countries or some other religions or worldview. Mission is always boundary crossing. The next passage comes from uh, John 20. This, is, again, is post-resurrection Jesus. Uh, starting in verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And again, we see all three members of the triune God active uh, in this passage. Because, first of all, the Father is the sender. The Father sent Jesus. And now Jesus is sending the disciples. Uh, the foundation of sending is the relationship of oneness between the Father and the Son because the Son is carrying out the will of the Father in this relationship. Jesus appears as the sent one, and now he's sending his disciples. And the Holy Spirit is revealed to the disciples. He says, receive. And the Holy Spirit gives his presence, his guidance, and his empowerment of mission. Mission can only actually be carried out in the power of the Spirit, and the church shares in this resurrection life of Christ. So as the disciples go, a new community of transformed disciples is being formed, and that's resulting in believers in the church gathering uh, as that continues. Another passage is from Luke 24, uh, 36 to 48, again post-resurrection. He appears to two people from Emmaus and he tell, who are talking about Jesus, and he appears amongst them. And then he says, when I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that his message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are my witnesses of these things, and now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Again, we see the triune God. Jesus reveals himself. He's the one uh, revealing himself as his son to the disciples. They are witnesses of him. He tells them he is sending the Holy Spirit. And the church continues Jesus' ministry, this deliverance from the power of sin. There is forgiveness of, for, of sins for all who repent in verse 49. He tells them this is just as the Father promised, ind indicating that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all working together for this to happen. And then Mark 16, 14 to 18. This passage, by the way, uh, if you read the translator notes, we'll tell you that some manuscripts do not include this. 
Uh, the shorter versions do, uh, don't, and the longer versions do. So in most translations, they include it. So we might as well read it. It's there. And there's some belief that it was supposed to have been included and maybe in, in the copying process by the, by the scribes of the past, some left it in, some didn't put it in. Let's read it. Jesus appeared as the disciples were eating together, again, the 11, and he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. There are miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick, and they will be healed. When the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And the disciples went everywhere and preached, and the Lord worked through them, confirming what they said uh, by many miraculous signs. And again, the triune God. Jesus is the one saying, I will take my place of authority. Where? Beside the Father. There are signs that will be given to confirm the word and demonstrate the Lord. And the signs come through the power of the Holy Spirit. And although, so while that we don't see the Spirit mentioned explicitly, we know from reading uh, books like the book of Acts that it was the Spirit who brought uh, these signs and brought th- these miracles. And then finally, uh, the fifth one, uh, fifth and final of this, this sort of grouping, Acts 1, 6 to 8. Just before his ascension into heaven, Jesus says to his disciples, the apostles were with him, so the, the, the 12, uh, because they've now appointed Judas's replacement, and they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Again, we see the triune God active in this passage as well. I know you just looked at Acts, and I believe you looked at probably this passage a while ago, maybe back a few months ago. I don't, I didn't get a chance to listen to that particular message, um, but uh, this, this may at least be a quick review. Here we see that Jesus is present. So this is the Jesus' son is present. The apostles are with Jesus. They were asking him. And Jesus references God the Father. He's the one who has the authority. He's the one who knows all things. And in this case, it's going to set the dates for, um, for the end of the age. Jesus concludes with, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. So there's the third member of the triune God. The disciples were formed by the Spirit as witnesses and they're going to enter new places some of these places they've been before but some they've never been to before they're going to start in judea they're going to go to samaria that place that all jews hate to go but they have to go and then eventually to the ends of the earth and at least for saint thomas that meant india we don't know where all the others how far away they went but india in that time was a long ways away. The ends of the earth were wherever it was to the people of the day. They had no idea that Australia existed and 
and Papua New Guinea and places like that, but was close to, to their geography. We also see how geography matters. Place matters to God. He moves us from a specific place to a new place. That's the history of migration. I think most of us are migrants. Um, at least uh, probably the, I think it's safe to say we're, uh, in a country like Australia, the majority of us are, are probably migrants. I'm a, I'm a migrant. I obviously did not grow up here. I have an, a supposedly an American accent because my parents are American missionaries. Grew up in Papua New Guinea, uh, so mixed up a bit. But geography matters. Place matters. God moves us and moves his disciples from one place to other places. We go from place to place, uh, to go from people to people, to go from an old identity into a new one. And as we move around, we, as Christians, find a fellowship and join together, just as you have done here. Place matters to God. Montmorency matters to God. So these five passages taken together, we could say, are the great commission from our Lord to make him known and make disciples of the nations. So I actually take a case with Hudson Taylor and say, you shortchanged us, uh, Mr. Taylor, as great as you are. You only gave us one. There's actually five passages that all link together, that flesh out and enrich. Because, for example, Acts, the Acts passage is the one that gives us ge- this geographic idea that we've got to be moving out in this whole process of disciple making. Each of these passages adds something to the commission that we may miss if we only look at the one. Well, let me give you a a translation story that comes from Russia. So we hear about Russia all the time, but we don't hear this kind of story. It's a story that reminds us that even with all the tragedy that's going on in that part of the world, God still is up to something. And this story comes from a very unlikely place. It's the Romani people, the gypsies. The gypsies or Romani uh, live across Europe, including in Russia. They are an oral culture. They, they tell stories. That's a main form of communication. And so a strategy of oral Bible stories uh, has been uh, developed for this particular group of Romani in this particular part of Russia, and we don't obviously say where that is. And through this powerful stories, people were introduced to Christ. And in this church service where they were celebrating the stories, eight people gave their lives to the Lord for the first time. That's a big deal in Romani culture for uh, and what, what can be seen as an outside story to be accepted. So a local talented storyteller has shared these stories from the Bible. In a region where illiteracy is very high, where written translations are scarce, oral storytelling becomes an invaluable tool for sharing the message of Christ. So this timeless method of sharing the gospel resonates with individuals from oral cultures that bridges language barriers. They can enter into the story. They can find themselves in the story. Uh, that's what we find, too, I think, whenever we hear a story from the Bible. But for these people, they've never gotten to read them uh, before because they're not, uh, uh, they are an illiterate culture, an oral culture. But oral Bible storing, 
such as this example, is just one example of partnering in mission. So coming back to the triune God working together gives us an example of partnering, believe it or not. They're all working together. They're all helping each other. They're making sure that the Father's mandate is followed. So they're, they're partnering with each other. That actually should inspire us how we could be working together as well. And for this Romani group of people, they wouldn't have had these Bible stories if there hadn't been a whole network of people working on their behalf. There was obviously the storytellers, the ones trained to tell these stories, but behind that was the ones who translated the stories uh, from whatever language they were working off of, probably Russian, into the Romani dialect that they spoke. The storyteller crafts the stories, but somebody else had translated it for the storyteller. And behind them is a whole consortium, a whole network of global and regional and local Bible translation organizations supporting this and other translation efforts, raising resources, asking people to pray, providing technical expertise. And behind them is countless people who are praying and giving financial support, just like you do here for your missionaries. The mission cannot happen as Lone Rangers. We all need each other and we need partnership, and that's why the triune God is an excellent place to look. I'd like to close by leaving you three challenges out of this text and, and, uh, and our thoughts about mission. The first one is that we, we face a situation which is really good, and that is that the global Christianity has really grown, especially in the last 122 or 120 years. Uh, Gina Zerlo, who, who's in the United States, she's a statistician, a Christian statistician. She's the one who brings together all the data from around the world and computes it and tells us these things. Uh, she notes that Christianity continues to be the world's largest religion, just barely. It has over 2.5 billion people claim to be Christian. She notices how in the last 120 years it went from 558 million to 2.56 billion people. That's quintupling, five times the amount of people. And most of that growth did not happen in the Western world. It happened in the majority world, the rest of the world. So this was an outcome of the largely Western missionary movement of the last couple hundred years, who took the Great Commission seriously, especially the Matthew 28 one. That might have been the only one they were actually familiar with in Bible school. They might not have been taught about the other four. But they took it seriously, and they went out, and they shared their faith. Churches were born. People were baptized. So it's a truly global faith now. I guess it always has been, but not to this degree. However, mission decisions, decisions about mission strategy and focus continue to be made in the Western world. Trust me on this. I, I sit in those meetings. I, I work with those leaders. I, I work out of a program out of Oxford where we have, uh, at, at any one time, 25 international mission leaders going through this leadership program. I sit with these friends, and I know that most of the strategy is decided in the Western world, farther and farther away from the local realities. And so one of our challenges at the, as the Western church 
is to learn how to, or continue to learn how to deliberately collaborate with the hearts and minds of the church and Christians from the majority world. It is no longer about the Western world. In fact, we have less and less, I think, to even offer a church that's exploding. But we are needed just as the body of Christ and Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 all are needed. We're not being replaced, but we deliberately have to learn from the majority world. I work in, in theological education um, part, well, not very often, but I get invited into meetings uh, at Melbourne School of Theology. And one of the latest discussions that they've asked me for help on is how do we learn from majority world theologians and scholars? Because all of our reading, all the material we're, we're studying is from Western scholars and theologians and, and Bible exegetes. How do we learn from majority world? It takes a deliberate mindset shift to submit ourselves uh, to these colleagues. So how are we going to do that? Secondly, the second uh, challenge is that Christianity has flipped. A mission leader from Malawi, uh, Harvey Kuayani, he describes this shift as a global, multi-ethnic, multicultural, or polycentric, multiple center missionary movement. It's no longer from west to the rest and all those sayings. The photo there uh, is actually... Uh, it's an intentional photo. It's a Bible school in Panama, in Central America, of the Kuna people, indigenous group. They have the scriptures. They study it as a Bible institute. They've been doing that for a few years, and they invited me in not, not that long ago, a couple of years ago before lockdowns, and asked me to teach them about global mission. And I said, Why? Well, the gospel has come to us. We have a responsibility to go, and we're going to go to the ends of the earth. No one in that room told them, well, wait a minute. You've got to learn all these other languages and go raise all this money, and well, who are you going to go through? Nobody told them anything. They just had the scriptures, and they said, help us figure this out so we can go and do our part. So that would be happening, I submit to you, all around the world. So Harvey Kuyani goes on to describe this outcome that we see in this bar graph. In 1900, the predominantly uh, Western nations represented 82% of, that's the blue far left uh, bar graph. Left? Yeah. Um, that was 1900, those were the Western Christians. They made up 82% of the total number of Christians worldwide. Come to today, that's flipped upside down. So now it's 67% are from the majority world or approximately 33% from the Western world. We shouldn't even be shocked by that number. I mean, I, I, I just look at Melbourne and how secular it's become in the 30 years I've lived here. But that's not the picture happening around the world. So many other countries were seeing the church grow in a, in a major way. So what should our challenge be in this regard? My view is that we should deliberately work on our attitudes and perspectives to now see the majority church is, the, is greater than we are. We become uh, its servant, just like modeled for us in John 3.30 with John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus becomes greater, I become less. Majority world be church becomes greater, we become its servant. That's an incredible challenge for us as a church. And then finally... The triune God is the one all along, as I hope I've presented through these uh, great commission passages, as he's the one 
Father, Son, and Spirit, who's been working in partnerships. So partnering together starts with the Trinity. The triune God longs to meet us and speak, instruct, and align our hearts with his plans. But this requires an authentic mission partnership. This is counterintuitive to human condition because it requires vulnerability. It may require suffering. It certainly requires self-emptying. And it requires humbling ourselves, and it requires listening and learning. Uh, recently at, at uh, Melbourne School of Theology, they asked me to teach a brand new unit called Partnering in Ministry in Local and Global Contexts. Never been taught before in the Australian Colleges of Theology, which is a consortium of 18 of Australian New Zealand's colleges. Never before have they ever taught a course on partnering in ministry. I was... I was dumbfounded. I just thought it's so central for ministry, whether it's pastoral ministry, church ministry, mission, we've got to figure out how to partner together, how to work together as the body of Christ. So we ran this unit recently as an intensive. I had, there was pastors, uh, mission people, and business people. And we looked at what the scriptures have to tell us about partnering together. We looked at what history has shown us in mission. And I remember every one of these students, as we got to the end of the five days, they just looked at me and said, this is so foundational. How come, we, we, it's, how come it's taken us so many years to get to this point to figure out God wants us to work together? Now, a challenge in that, uh, and I've been criticized for this, is that we still have our, our boundary lines of how we're going to work together. They may be theological. They may be how we see scripture. They may be... Geography, it's hard to work together when you're far away from each other. But nonetheless, I think embedded in what we see in the triune God, how he's worked in history, we've seen him calling forth Christians to work together. So how do we do this better? Uh, Again, with the emphasis between Western mission and majority world. How do we develop attitudes of listening, giving, forgiving to enable partnerships in this fragile and broken human world that we live in. So those are the challenges I, I leave with you, the big ones. can't solve these on our own, but I trust as you pursue God and his mission uh, that he will guide you in your spaces that he's equipped you for. So let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves to you. We pray that Whatever you've been saying to us individually and as a church, that your spirit will just enliven that, those ideas, those thoughts, your word. You give us pictures and visions of how we can serve you better in this space of your mission, whether it's right here in Montmorency or or Melbourne or Victoria, Australia, nearby region of Asia Pacific or the farther ends of the earth, whatever it might be, but may you find us faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.